Hey, it's Kristen. You're listening to Rational in Portland. I'm so excited to have Vadim Mazursky on today. Vadim ran for city council, and you'll remember that he came in and did an episode here on this show about why we should vote no on charter. Unfortunately, uh, everybody voted yes on charter, not everybody, but the the majority. And so here we are with charter reform. He's going to talk a little bit about charter reform, but I know that Vadim is also very active in his neighborhood association and He's been getting a lot of our neighborhood associations together in Portland to learn about different civic issues and to try to educate us about civics in general, which I just really appreciate. Vadim, welcome. Thanks so much for coming. Well, thank you very much, Kristen. It's a pleasure being on your show. Um, I'm glad to be back, and uh, I'm an avid listener, and I, I thank you very much for educating people on what's happening here in Portland and uh, you know, helping people understand um, what we're facing and what the challenges are and, and really what the solutions are as well. So tell us what you've been doing with the neighborhood associations. So I've been involved in neighborhood associations for quite some time. I'm the president of uh, the Goose Hollow Neighborhood Association, but also um, the president of uh, what's called Neighbors West Northwest. It's a coalition of neighborhood associations. And um, I've spent the last few years um, reaching out to neighborhood associations throughout Portland. And you may ask why. Well, it's because I believe that this is very much the grassroots um, uh, political entities, social entities, um, educational entities here for Portland. It's people that are um, care about their neighbors, care about what's happening in their areas, care about the city, and they're donating their time to make this city better. So um, a while back, um, I held a forum for neighborhood associations where 64 um, representatives from neighborhood associations throughout Portland attended, um, the biggest attendance of neighborhood associations in, in years here in Portland. It used to be supported by the city, but you know, unfortunately, the city doesn't want to hear those voices as much. So it's not been supported. And and now um, with the challenges that are facing Portland, um, we are organizing um, neighborhood associations to have educational forums and action forums about how to address these issues. Because when you look at it, you know, right now we're here in downtown. You walk around downtown, you'll see people smoking fentanyl. You see people um, in tents. You see people with mental health problems. Um, you see a lot of suffering out there. And guess who's helping with that suffering? The Downtown Neighborhood Association. Uh, David Dixon and some other individuals here, Walt Weiler, the president of that neighborhood association. They have outreach where they're bringing water to people in tents, where they're bringing clothing to people in tents, where they're helping people connect to services. And and they want their politicians to act upon the needs that they know so well. And so we're organizing that, helping people uh, coordinate with elected officials and also hearing from the elected officials and telling them, we want you all to work better together. County, city, state, work better to solve these issues. Thank you so much for doing everything that you're doing. I really appreciate you staying involved in public and civic life. And my understanding from that neighborhood association gathering that you put together where all these leaders came together, and I was supposed to be there, but unfortunately... I had to send a representative in my stead. Um, I know the president of my neighborhood association was there, and the people who went actually said that uh, Dan Ryan, who's now heading up Civic Life, which is where the neighborhood associations fall under, was in attendance and seemed really enthusiastic about all the people you brought together. So I think that's a good sign about where the city is headed. Yeah, uh, and, and Dan actually requested to be there, and, and TJ McHugh, um, his uh, political advisor as well, um, and, and, you know, Dan Ryan at that point in time, um, was in charge of, uh, civic life and still is. And, and 
once again, you know, right now we have this commission of foreign government that is going to change. But right now it's it's very important that our leaders who are um, in charge of these bureaus um, respond to the needs of people um, uh, in, in the Portland community. And Dan Ryan was there, and uh, we appreciate the fact that people actually come out and, and listen to uh, what people's needs are. Can you say at all what the feedback was that you heard from people that you gathered there? Is that something that's public that you can share? Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we actually did um, uh, kind of a, a ranking of people's uh, concerns, you know, and we really expected that the number one ranking would be, uh, you know, crime, um, homelessness, those sort of things, which we hear in the press. And those did come up um, very highly. But that's not what neighborhood associations deal with day to day. It's about the livability issues. It's about how to make sure that, you know, our parks are cared for, how to make sure that our potholes are fixed, how to make sure that our, you know, whatever's built in our neighborhood um, is, is something that's usable and something that benefits um, people that live there. So um, the the, the number one issue was uh, how to work better with the city. You know, we've had uh, politicians that were elected that unfortunately have decided um, that neighborhood associations were the enemy. I don't know why. These are all people that are rolling up their sleeves, donating their time to help out. And neighborhood associations are not uh, homeowners associations, which some people assume. You know, in my neighborhood association, we have renters, we have uh, homeowners, we have condo, people live in condos. Um, we have people from a broad spectrum, and everyone is welcome. Everybody can join. Everybody can vote and get people on the board. So, um, you know, the number one issue was how to work better together with the city to address these problems and make sure that um, our needs are, are met and when that, those needs entail a broad spectrum. And, of course, there was, you know, the, we need to address homelessness in a concerted effort. We need to address uh, drug addiction, mental health in a concerted effort because every neighborhood in Portland is feeling the effects of that neglect. One of the mm -hmm. civic topics, my understanding, is that you're going to be exploring is Measure 110. Is that right? Is there an event coming up in regard to Measure 110? Yes. Um, on December 14th at 3 p.m., um, Neighbors West Northwest um, is sponsoring in, in concert with several neighborhood associations a forum on Measure 110. And so right now um, we have a pretty broad spectrum of people that are involved in that and will be panelists. Rob Nose, uh, the representative, is going to be there. We will have Paige Richardson from the organization that is advocating to um, amend Measure 110. We can talk a little bit about my understanding of that. Um, but that's, in my mind, the number one issue that's facing um, Oregon and certainly Multnomah County and Portland in the short term. Um, and so that, that's going to be on Zoom. Um, if anybody's interested in attending, you know, please email me at vadim at Missouri. Com. I'll be glad to give you a link or contact your neighborhood associations. Um, they'll, they'll be involved in one fashion or another. Um, but it, it'll be both the people. Um, we'll, we also have uh, uh, Monte Knudsen, who is from an organization that's receiving Measure 110 funding. And so we have uh, people that will most probably be talking about what works about Measure 110, what doesn't work about Measure 110, and how we can fix it so you won't see people smoking fentanyl out in the streets or using methamphetamines out in the streets and that they get the services and the help that they need. Talk about why you think Measure 110 is the number one issue facing Oregonians. Well, okay, so I'll, I'll make this a little bit personal here. I was uh, talking to a good friend, and she was mentioning how she and her um, then 12-year-old daughter, now 13, were walking around downtown. And her daughter was explaining to her mother um, who was using fentanyl, who was using methamphetamines, what the difference was. There's no reason why our children need to be walking around um, understanding what fentanyl is, um, seeing it in the streets, being exposed to it. Um, you know, there's, um, there's a, a committee that's been formed recently in our legislatures, the Joint Committee on Addiction and Public Safety, I think is the name of it. There was just testimony on that. Yesterday. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yesterday. There was a third third uh, set of testimony. Um, a lot of people signed up to testify as well. Most of them that were not able to because of time constraints, but a lot of people testified. So the, the thing that was glaring to me, two points. One, one of the biggest increases we've seen is um, you know, drug addiction and overdoses in uh, our, our youth, in our minors, um, people that um, 
are, are exposed to this. And there's reasons for that. You know, kids right now are dealing with a lot of pressures and they're looking for, uh, you know, perhaps something to uh, deal with those pressures that they're facing. You know, we just came out of COVID lockdowns where there's been a lot of depression. There's um, uh, a lot of things that our kids are facing that probably you and I did not face when we were their age. And so kids might, you know, be looking for some Adderall to help them study or something to help them go to sleep. But guess what? They buy those pills that they think are, um, you know, those those uh, prescribed medications and they actually have fentanyl in them, methamphetamines in them, and then the overdoses happen. There was also testimony yesterday from a, um, a, a fireman, and he said in the last two years, he has seen more overdoses. Um, he worked in the downtown Portland area, more overdoses than he had seen in his previous 28 years of service combined. There's 300 overdoses that occur monthly just in the downtown area that the, our fire bureau has to deal with as a first responder. Something is broken, and um, one just has to walk around Old Town, downtown, central east side to know the, the rampant drug use. So the question is, you know, are we dealing with that? Um, is, it, is it a problem that's caused by Measure 110? Is there a problem that Measure 110 um, is not able to deal with? Or according to some people, things are working fine and here's why, you know, and we really need to discuss that. And unless you're sitting there for three, four hours listening to the, you know, joint off a joint committee on drug addiction and public safety, um, you may not be hearing all um, sides of the issue. And that's where uh, the neighborhood associations can have a forum where we can discuss that and let people know how to advocate for their needs. Yeah, my understanding based on the polling is that the amount of people who think Measure 110 is working out great is pretty darn small. Um, so my understanding is the majority of Oregonians would like to see Measure 110 significantly overhauled. If I think repeal was the most popular option on that Edison poll. Um, you know, you were talking about kids and... That really hit home for me because I just read about another child who, a teen who died of a overdose in Northeast Portland. Apparently, this was like from the Oregonian, just December fifteen-year-old, right? Yes, yeah. yeah it, it's so it says a twenty-year-old man facing federal charges after allegedly selling fentanyl-laced counterfeit oxycodone pills to two fifteen-year-old girls in Northeast Portland, one of whom died of an overdose. This man is charged with distributing and possessing fentanyl resulting in serious bodily injury and death. And it says they were, this child was taken to Randall Children's Hospital in North Portland. She and her friend, now these two 15 year old girls crushed and snorted these pills. And this particular girl, this poor girl went into a coma and was pronounced dead. Uh, this is in October 1st. And she was the ninth child to have fatally overdosed in Portland this year. And it says, it goes on, this is that same Oregonian article, at least four other children have overdosed and survived, including a 15-month-old who put a piece of opiate-contaminated aluminum foil in her mouth in southeast Portland, a three-year-old and two one-year-olds who overdosed after coming into contact with fentanyl in their home, and, I mean, like you said, Vadim, it says Portland police have been notified of 277 fatal drug overdoses in 2023, and that is a 75% increase compared to this time in last year. And drug overdose deaths have tripled statewide between 2019 and 2021. Oh, my God. I mean, this is really those kind of statistics. You can talk all you want about correlation versus causation, but I think those of us with eyes and ears reading this kind of data saw a real market change in 2020 with Measure 110. And this kind of stuff is just unacceptable. It, it very much is unacceptable. We're seeing people dying. We're reading about it in the press. I guarantee people listening to this podcast know someone that's been affected by uh, drug addiction and, and certainly exacerbated by the fact of how easily available it is right now. A lot of the violence we're seeing comes from um, organizations, gangs that are, um, you know, dealing with uh, or, or distributing the, the drugs. Um, and that's not talked about as much anymore. But, you know, if you know a police officer, if you know uh, a fire person, talk to them and ask them what their opinion is. And you will hear stories that will really open your eyes about the level of harm that is being done by what 
we're experiencing right now, which is open air drug markets, uh, which is the inability to, um, you know, one, uh, control the open use of drugs, two, getting people to the services that they need, um, three, having enough services available so even if people do reach out, they'll have a place to go in order to get, um, you know, drug addiction services, and three, um, having a, a place where they can recover long enough so they can go and, and be part of society again. So when you talk about recovery and drug addiction services, those are the kinds of words that Measure 110 used. And I think that's why people like me, which, you know, I I completely will be atoning for this until it's just me and the cockroaches here, voted for Measure 110, not understanding that the Drug Policy Alliance had actually defined those things very differently under Measure 110. My assumption Vadim, is that you're defining that in the way that I thought it would have been defined in the ballot measure as detox, rehab, things like sober living. Exactly. So one <laughs> Probably is... Probably not aluminum foil and boba straws. Yeah. I, I, as, I, as I understand it, Measure 110 um, mandates that you cannot require people to seek drug addiction treatment as part of the funding that goes out. So all these organizations that are getting funding, they can provide services. But if someone just says, hey, I, I need... Um, you know, harm reduction stuff like syringes and, and even the failed attempt to provide um, fentanyl smoking supplies to people um, by the county, uh, that that is allowable. But you can't tell a person, well, you need to go to a place where you can get um, drug addiction services as part of the requirements of the funding. And I think that's where we differ from places like Portugal. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of uh, comparison in the past that what we're trying to do here is what the successes that Portugal has had. Now, you can ask whether Portugal has been successful and to what extent, but Portugal spent years um, laying the groundwork for their decriminalization efforts. We did not. Portugal mandates that people go into treatment, and there's certain levels that people will go through depending on, you know, public use of drugs and so on. But, you know, they, they try to get people... Um, coercively, um, and then they try to mandate people to go into treatment uh, in order to stop using those drugs. And that's where the success comes in. It's not allowing the drugs, it's that getting people into treatment. Right now, um, because Measure 110 was passed before all those treatment options were actually funded and available, we don't have those options. But importantly enough, and this is a question that you know we need to tackle, how do we ensure that people that are suffering from a drug addiction that are harming themselves and oftentimes harming the community around them, how do we ensure that they get into drug addiction treatment and, and um, turn their lives around? Um, again, at that joint, uh, joint committee, there was testimony, I believe by an OHSU doctor, I might be wrong about that, but that only half of 1% of people voluntarily go into treatment as a, as a general trend. And we're seeing that here in Portland as well. You know, even if you get a citation for open use of drugs, which is not a criminal citation, if you don't pay it, nothing happens. Um, less than 1% of the people call up the 1-800 number to link up with services so that uh, that citation gets canceled. Very few people voluntarily um, uh, avail themselves of the services. And even if they do, well, we don't have enough people to help them as it is. So how do you ensure that we have enough um, people in place to um, help people with their drug addiction problems, but also that individuals that are in the throes of fentanyl addiction, which is very strong, in the throes of methamphetamine addiction, which is very strong, um, actually um, call up the number, go to those services, and get what they need. Uh, that's the big question right now. That's what's being tackled um, amongst both the proponents and um, the people that think that Measure 110 uh, needs to be changed. Do you have any sense of what the chances in the legislature are? I think there's a very strong chance. Um, you know, very strong. I, I, I do. I do. I mean, everybody realizes you, you just have to have a, eyes to see what's going on. Um, you, do you think that is getting through to the legislators, though? I mean, it might be given all this because I, I heard the same stuff you did yesterday. It might be given all this good public testimony, all these people that are coming out. Do you think that that is getting through to our legislators? Well, that's the reason why we're having, you know, say the Measure 110 forum is so people know what the options are and and are able to advocate for that because what we're hearing right now and and you know this is what i've been hearing for sure at, at these committee meetings 
is people saying, oh, um, we don't want to go back to where people in marginalized communities are being jailed for using drugs. No one's actually saying that. No one's saying we want to put these people in jail. Even the proponents of um, the, the Changing Measure 110, the coalition to, I think it's Amend Measure 110, um, uh, which is Max Williams and, and uh, Kevin Barton, who's the DA of Washington County, uh, even those proponents are saying, we're, we're not trying to put people in jail. We just want to make sure that there's both a carrot, which is a lot of options available, but also a stick for people that choose not to avail themselves of those options. So as I understand it, you know, um, the first step is that uh, if someone is, you know, perhaps smoking fentanyl out in the streets um, in front of children or whomever it is, that they're given the option of linking to some sort of services, whether that be street response or something along those lines. And if they choose that, then uh, nothing happens. The second is um, that there be some sort of citation um, or criminal citation where if that individual goes to sort of a, a drug court and if that person through a drug court, which Portland had before but no longer because Measure 110, the drug court had no teeth. Um, and, and so they go to a drug court and then they're mandated treatment. And if they go to that treatment, again, no one goes to jail, nothing criminal in the record, everything is clean, and those people get the drug addiction services that they need. And the third step is if those people still refuse and they're harming themselves, harming other people due to their drug use. And again, we're talking about fentanyl here. We're talking about methamphetamines. We're not talking about marijuana or, or some of these other things. We're talking about things that will kill people and have killed people and cause harm to their neighbors, um, then uh, jail might be a recourse. Uh, but if that person goes through treatment, their record would be expunged. So again, nothing in, um, as long as treatment is an option, nothing long-term will prevent that individual from getting housing, from getting a job. The individuals are uh, even looking to amend this, are doing um, their utmost to ensure that there's a balance between the needs of the community, which is making sure that our kids are not exposed to drugs, but also the needs of uh, people that are um, addicted to drugs and getting the treatment that they need. Well, and my understanding from Nathan Vasquez is that no one was ever being prosecuted for doing drugs in Portland anyway. I mean, obviously, the nexus of this crisis is playing itself out on the streets of Portland. In Multnomah County, we, we were never prosecuting people for drug use. Yeah, I've heard the same thing as well. I don't have the statistics about that, but I do know that our drug court model was something that was being emulated in other states because it was working very well here in Portland. Yeah. If you got arrested, uh, there was a drug court. You were you were told to go to um, some sort of drug addiction services. And if you did that, um, nothing on the record, you would not spend time in jail. That was emulated. And now, is what we're doing here being emulated? The, the answer is no. Uh, there's no place around the United States well, which is looking at Portland mm -hmm. <laughs> or, or Oregon. Now, I, you know, there's a, a broad range of solutions to all this, but, you know, I, I it's just what, what's happening right now is, is a tragedy and we need to call it what it is. It's not something that is beneficial to uh, people that live here in Portland. It's not beneficial to people that are unfortunately addicted to drugs. How do we change that? There's a lot of options, but I do believe we need some change. So I, when I told people that you were coming on, everybody was very excited and they loved your no on charter episode. I'm convinced that you were able to get those people, not that it was worth a ton because charter ended up passing, but to, to vote no on charter. Now that we have charter reform here in Portland, Oregon, what are we going to see that's going to be different? Now we know based on your from your episode that you were on the Charter Commission and you and Alyssa Pishka, of course, left that um, commission and you were both part of the No on Charter movement. But because you have that, you had that inside seat and you saw as the plans were unfolding and you sort of watched it at, even after you left the, the Charter Commission, I'm curious about what, what can you tell us that's coming down the pike here? Lots of questions. If anything. <laughs> Lots of questions. So first, let me let me say we, we did have a, a lot of success in educating people about what's happening here. When I went out to um, places all over Portland and we're saying, hey, you know, this is what the voting system is like. Um, 
And, and people were like, I, I don't understand that even after you discussed it. Um, when I told them that neighborhoods from Central East Side, because of how the districting work would be um, part of the Western District. You were spot on about that. People were like, I, I don't want that to happen because we don't have the same common needs. Um, and we're more... Um, uh, associate ourselves with this central east side. Well, that happened, and then each neighborhood over there was advocating not to be with the west, and then four neighborhoods were merged with the west, uh, kicking and screaming. So, you know, we tried to educate, but the problem was we were outspent four to one. So when it comes to mailings, when it comes to social media, it was very hard to get the word out individually and things like that. We saw so many mailings come in with information that um, was not correct, but you can only fix it with with more mailings and we ran into that. Same thing with Measure 110. You know, it was outspent $6 million to $300,000 because lots of money came in for Measure 110. Lots of money came in from outside the state for these charter changes. Lots of measure money came in from outside the state to experiment here in Portland and Oregon. And now people are sitting back and watching us experiment. And, um, you know, sometimes it doesn't go well. So with respect to the changes that we have in place, you know, uh, uh, like you, I'm, I'm really curious to see what happens. I think there'll be a lot of surprises. I think we'll get people um, elected into good. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it, it, it hopefully, you know, one crosses one's fingers and, you know, a lot will depend on the city manager. I think we need to hire the best individual possible to do that job because that individual will, um, you know, have to um, manage a huge bureaucracy while city council figures out, you know, who picks up the phone when someone calls about potholes and things like that. Um, but none of that has worked out. You know, it's, it's one of these things that we do here in um, Portland, Multnomah County. Uh, we pass measures without laying the groundwork to make sure that they're successful. Um, once again, you know, Portugal legalized drugs, but they put in the groundwork for years to make sure that the services were in place before that happened. Um, here, we changed um, our charter, but we didn't have everything in place to make sure they're successful. Now people are trying to catch up. You know, same thing with Measure 110, didn't have the services in place. Same thing with the tax that most of you are paying for homeless services. You know, that was passed by Metro without any plan before it was changed as to how the money was going to be spent. And then now we're seeing that Multnomah County is not spending the money that they uh, are getting, that there's no concerted effort between the county and the city to make sure we're successful, and so on and so forth. That's, again, lack of planning ahead of time. So when you have lack of planning, weird things happen, and sometimes bad things happen. So fingers crossed, but the, the voting situation is going to be really interesting who gets elected. You know, you, you can get um, people on the far left, on the far right. All you need is 25% of the vote to get elected. And um, we're not quite sure how that's going to work out. It could be less than 25%, though, couldn't it? Depending well, on what the software looks like. Yeah, you know, people say it's, it could be less than 25%. It's less than 25% of the registered voters and things like that. There's there's ways you can look at that number, which is 25%. I guess um, I more mean with mm -hmm. single transferable vote. Isn't it possible that somebody with less than 25% gets on depending on different variables? At the end of the day, they will have 25% of the vote. It's how they get that 25% of the vote. It's not first place votes. It could be second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth and place votes. And that's the important part, mm -hmm. right? Right. So overall... It, it ends up looking like 25%, but it may not. I mean, if we were just doing an election where everybody's voting for this individual, it won't be 25% of all of our votes. Exactly. So that, that's a real difference. It, it's a huge difference. And it's one that will take a lot of, um, I think, education for people to understand the importance of the votes. So when you get that ballot, and, and you'll see like a bunch of names, probably there'll be about 20 people running in each district, if not more, when all is said and done. Some people are waiting till January to file and, and to run. But you'll see basically uh, 20, you know, individuals on your, uh, on your ballot and uh, six bubbles next to them. And you can rank them one to six. I believe it's six at this point. Um, you know, proponents were saying you can rank as many as you want, but then, you know, even at that point in time, we knew that that was foolhardy because you have this huge ballot of 400 bubbles. But, um, and so, you know, you would rank your first choices, obviously your first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. If your first choice um, 
and we'll get into this maybe a little bit if you want to into the math. Yeah, no, let's get into it because everybody is dying to hear what you have to say about this. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's one of those things where I, I've talked about this um, time and time again. And no matter how many angles I go at it, I get blank stares at the end of the conversation. <laughs> no. Um, and, I, you know, it, it doesn't matter who I talk to, people um, that, that know <laughs> politics inside and out still, they're like, we, we did this, what? So, um, you know, uh, there's um, ranked choice voting is used in several jurisdictions. Now, single transferable vote, which is what we're going to have here in um, Portland, uh, right now is is used in, um, in in another jurisdiction, but not in um, multi member districts in Cambridge, Cambridge, exactly. Massachusetts. But again, Cambridge doesn't have multi member districts, so there's nowhere in the United States that has this kind of system where it's single transferable vote, ranked choice voting, and multi member districts. An interesting uh, caveat to that. So Arlington County, Virginia had um, for a brief moment recently in this past elections in November, um, multi-member district elections for, I think, their county seats or something like that in the primary. Um, a little bit different. We're not going to have a primary here anymore. Did they have single transferable vote? In yeah, with multi-member county? districts. Okay. And the feedback was so negative about that voting system, they canceled it for the general <laughs> election. Um, so I, I, again, you know, we're, we're seeing this happen throughout the country, you know, Arlington, uh, Virginia is the most recent one where they tried this and, and didn't like it right away. Um, are we, we allowed to can I don't know that no we're way. allowed to cancel something that's by ballot measure. It's in our charter now. So, so we, we, we can't can get all the feedback that we want. It's not going to matter. We're going to have to just plow through this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we will. And so what happens is basically you'll get, again, a ballot, you'll have a, a bunch of bubbles, um, and let's say you have um, several individuals running. One person uh, might be running for re-election. They're already elected to um, city council or what have you. So this is basically going to ensure that everyone in office maintains their seat as long as they want because everybody always gets at least 25% of a really at least 30% of the vote. Even people like, uh, you know, Chloe Daly or Joanne Hardesty that have recently lost elections, they still get more than 30% of the vote. So basically anybody um, in our city council will remain on city council for as long as they want. Um, But if an individual that is in office runs again, and let's say they get 40% of the vote. You know, Joanna Hardesty, I think she got 48% of the vote. So let's say Joanne Hardesty were to have run under this current system um, and, uh, you know, she lost through Renee Gonzalez, but let's say she were to run uh, under the current system. Well, if she were to get 48% of the vote, she'd get reelected because all you need is 25% of the vote. Um, now, what happens to that extra uh, percentage above 25%? So uh, that extra 23% of the vote would trickle down through a mathematical formula to other individuals on a ballot. So let's say Joanne Hardesty ran on a slate with three individuals and she said, well, um, vote for me number one, but vote for my friend uh, Bob Smith number two and vote for my friend Jane Doe number three. Well, you know, Bob Smith just on the uh, tailcoats of uh, Joanne Hardesty would almost definitely get elected again. Because again, 23% of the vote would trickle down to other candidates. And so her number two votes and number three votes would get a large chunk of that 23%. So one incumbent can really help get two people elected because their votes trickle down. So let's say, um, you know, that uh, Bob Smith gets enough to get elected now just because they're on the same slate with Joanne Hardesty. Um, Bob Smith would get elected. He would get 25% of the vote, you know, 23% that would trickle down, plus a few more votes that that person would get as number one votes um, on their own. Um, But Jane Doe uh, would maybe have, you know, only 5% of the vote at that point in time or some odd number that's below 25%. Well, then whoever came in last um, on that particular election um, in that district their votes would transfer up to the second choice votes of whoever voted for that individual. And then it would go on. And then whoever came in second to last and third to last, their votes would be scooped up and moved to other individuals. So you have um, 
votes coming from uh, uh, perhaps uh, individuals that got more than 25%, and you also have votes coming from people that were in last place and their votes did not count. So if you uh, voted for, you know, Jane Doe as your, um, uh, 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 well, not Jane Doe, if you voted for last place as your first, your second place vote would count and so on and so forth until we had three people that off the votes that were cast um, had 25% of the vote. And this is all going to be done by computers because some of these are proportional votes, percentages of votes. So when they trickle down from that first place, they don't automatically go on to like a second place. It's proportional. So, you know, we need to have computer systems in place in order to ascertain how those votes trickle down, what percentages they trickle down. People get portions of votes and things like that. Um, and that's that's what everybody is is waiting to see how that all turns out because right now no one's quite sure. So do we have those computer systems and the software written to do this? No, no. I have not seen that contract <laughs> being given out to anybody. And as far as I know, that particular program is not yet available because, again, we're, we're test driving something fairly new here in Portland. Um, so we have a really short window to make sure everything aligns. And then, you know, come the day after the election and when people are perhaps shocked at who wins, you know, we need to make sure that this is transparent so people can see how those votes got moved around, you know. So uh, as an aside a little bit, when I was doing all these debates about the charter, um, you know, one thing that the proponents of uh, making, you know, this particular type of voting system kept saying over and over is look at Malta. Um, Malta, you know, is is a country um, that has been using single transferable vote multi-member districts for a long time. And all we're trying to do is have that here. Well, you know, Google Malta and single transferable vote. Look at the Wikipedia page. They had a constitutional crisis because of what happened using the voting system that we're about to have here in Portland. Uh, because the individual that won the most first place votes um, didn't actually get elected because of how the votes, the second, third, fourth place votes got moved around and things like that. <laughs> so they had, they, they, they realistically um, uh, had a, a constitutional crisis where, you know, they had to make tweaks to their voting system in order to appease people. So it's not even resembling the voting system we'll have here to protect, um, you know, uh, individuals that got the most first place votes from basically losing an election so that their country would not spiral into chaos. So that, that was a really interesting thing. And when I pointed it out during the debates, they stopped talking about Malta and started talking about Ireland or someplace. But, um, Does you know, Ireland do this? There's a few countries that do it, um, but not quite again, the, how we're going to have it here. Yeah, not like us. And also, you know, America is very unique in many ways. And so when you're saying, oh, let's let's do what Australia does in their legislatures, well, Australia does it kind of differently as well. And, you know, if you look at how Australia used single transferable vote, there were some oddities in there. They elected a party that was, um, you know, kind of fascist and, um, you know, anti-immigration um, because of the way that, you know, you only need, uh, once again, a certain proportion of the votes, not the majority get elected. So you get you know, kind of ideologically driven fringe um, individuals elected. And so that's what we saw in Australia. So fingers crossed things work out here, but I don't like to cross my fingers on this kind of big issues, especially when we're, you know, going through a lot of, um, you know, crises here in Portland we need to address quickly. As far as you know, is it mandated that whatever software or computer program they come up with to compute all of this, will be transparent and available to the public so that we know what was done? Once again, I, I have not seen the RFP go out for this, so I, I hope so, but that's that's all we're going on, across uh, fingers and hopes. Right, so we don't, we don't know that. And mm -hmm. then the other question is, in the Joanne Hardesty example that you gave, the votes are only trickling down, let's say no matter what, even if she runs on a slate, the votes are only trickling down for candidates that those of us vote for, right? So even if a candidate runs on a slate, that slate will not be on the ballot altogether, will it? No, no. You'll probably... So you'd have to remember what the slate is for that plan to work? Yeah. Other countries that have tried a similar method to this... Uh, and they have in-person voting. There's actually people that stand in line and they um, 
they give uh, little cards to the voters saying, vote for this person, number one, number two, number three. There's always ways to game the system, and that's how it's done in other places. Here, um, you know, I, from what I've heard, there's people already talking about how to do that and educating um, people that are running. You know, you might have heard that Joanne Hardesty and um, D.A. Schmidt and some other people have formed a school um, as candidate to how to get school. people candidate yeah. school. So I, they haven't invited me to the candidate school, but um, <laughs> I've, I've heard that there is some discussion about how to game this system in order to win. And, um, and, and that's going to be part of it. You know, you might receive a mailing saying, hey, you know, you vote for these three individuals. Um, they're very aligned. They'll get you to where you need to go. Um, I would not be surprised if that's, if that's how this goes. That's, that's a lot to compute. Thank you so much for explaining all of that to us. You know, one thing that concerns me, and I don't, I don't necessarily expect you to comment on this, but I just want the listeners to understand, one of the things that really concerns me, and there's been testimony on this in front of city council that was really good that I'm going to try to link, um, but so, something that concerns me, and, and in fact, Mayor Wheeler said it concerned him, and it sounded like it concerned the majority of, of current city council, which I think is a relatively good, moderate group of people, um, as far as Portland's history is concerned, that there are people who were on the Charter Commission who served with you, Vadim, who are running now for city council. And the question from this member of the public was, isn't that a conflict? And Mayor Wheeler, and again, I'll link to this, but Mayor Wheeler and the, the city commissioners voiced their expression that they thought indeed it was, but that there was no prohibition on that, that they had discussed it with the city attorney, that the city attorney didn't think it was some kind of conflict that would prohibit people from running. But Mayor Wheeler expressed his idea that that could be an indictment of that individual that, hey, this is a system that you designed specifically for you and something only you understand, and now you're running. And I just want to, um, my second point on that is that I just want to people to understand that some of these people that served with Vadim on the Charter Commission have been redistributed. They're not running necessarily running for city council, but or positions otherwise, but they've been redistributed throughout the city and important organizations that people like me used to donate to and be part of, like the Multnomah Democrats or the League of Women Voters. And I just want to encourage large groups of people to join things like League of Women Voters or like the Multnomah Democrats, because if you got a group, a large enough group together, you could help take over those kinds of organizations in the way that these groups have done. If you are a centrist, moderate person, moderate progressive, a pragmatic progressive, and you got a bunch of your friends together to join these groups, you could very easily do what these fringe left people are doing and the ideologues are doing, and you could take those groups back from that far left persuasion. I mean, you see that the C4 arms of some of these groups like Legal Women Voters, for example, are doing things like plugging charter reform and and plugging things that maybe a lot of those of those of us in Portland who are relatively moderate don't necessarily think are things that people like me who used to donate to and be part of Legal Women Voters uh, would are really thrilled about. So I just want to encourage people to maybe think about that, talk to your friends, um, and think about the ways that people in Portland are sort of using the city to their benefit, and think about ways that you can use the city to your benefit. This is your city, too. This is all of our city. And if you want to get involved, that would be really helpful, um, because it's only through getting involved in things, like doing things like Vadim's doing, and doing civic education events, and doing things like he did in his run for city council. Um, that is public service. And another form of public service is joining these kinds of civic organizations and letting your voice be heard as a moderate person who maybe thinks that stuff like, you know, the Police Accountability Commission, which was staffed by, in my opinion, mostly people who are um, want to defund and or abolish police and people who will refuse to do police ride-alongs, those kinds of things. Um, if you're not really on board with that sort of thing, please, please think about getting involved with your community. Vadim, 
I'm assuming you don't have any comments on that and that we should move on to something else that I've heard you talk a lot about, which is Multnomah County. Um, when Sharon, Sharon Myron, friend of the show, has come in a couple of times, and each time she comes in, she educates us again about the purpose of Multnomah County, and I really appreciate it because the county is a forgotten entity, in my opinion, in the city of Portland. And, and I think that's true in the, in the national press, in the international press. They forget Multnomah County is held relatively unaccountable, even though, as Sharon said, Commissioner Sharon Myron, who's currently on the Multnomah County Commission, she has said that the, the county, you know, they're, they're the ones that are responsible for things like mental health. They're the ones who are responsible for things like drug addiction. And Vadim, what are your thoughts about Multnomah County and its role in those crises? Well, I, I think right now, in my mind, the focus is on the county. If you are tired of um, our region doing poorly when it comes to drug addiction, mental health, homelessness, you know, you can blame, blame Ted Wheeler all you want, and, and there's certainly blame to go around. But it's the county that funds those services. It's the county and really the county chair that determines how that funding, um, where that funding goes. And they're the ones that set the policy, including um, some of the crime policies. You know, there's what's called the Local Public Safety Coordinating Council, LIPSIC. And, um, you know, Chair Vega Peterson of the county uh, commission is, is chair of that organization as well, and they look at how um, public safety is. Um, they work with the sheriff. They work with the police chief. They work with city council to some extent, although the actors are uh, variable there. Uh, Rene Gonzalez, to his credit, is on that committee, um, but Vega Peterson is, is the person that uh, seems to be in charge. Um, and, and so, you know, th- when it comes to dealing with a lot of these issues that we're facing day to day, the county is taking the lead, but also a lot of people are not paying attention. And so hats off to people like uh, Dick Perkins out there who has been uh, organizing people. And uh, for those that may not have heard of uh, Dick Perkins, he um, is an individual, and, and I'm not um, saying anything too private. He talks about this all the time, who had uh, drug addiction issues in the past, was able to uh, beat them through help and um, was able to now advocate for what needs to be done for other people to go through the transformation that he went through. And he's organized people to address uh, the drug addiction problems that we have here, including the um, the, the new uh, uh, drug addiction center that's downtown that has, um, you know, you probably read Ted Wheeler uh, emailed people about how much uh, crime was resulting from that center. The Multnomah County Behavioral Health Center. The Behavioral Health Resource Center, exactly. Um, so uh, that again is is county sponsored, county paid for. At, at um, you know, I think it was twenty seven million dollars to remodel that building, and I think they serve like twenty five people a day at this point. But um, nonetheless, um, you have to advocate at the county level to get changes made if you're thinking that changes need to be made about the way we address those issues. And um, the money is at the county. Um, the money, how that gets distributed, whether it's, you know, short-term shelter so people can get off the streets and go into a shelter, get services, get a hot shower, get a hot meal, or long-term housing that we're building at up to $1,200 a square foot that takes years. And so people have to camp on the street until they get into that housing. If you're at all, um, you know, interested in how that works, the county is the one that's in charge. So Sharon Myron is, is right on point there. We need to focus on that. We need to advocate before that. You go to city council, you see a lot of people, um, you know, talking to city council at their meetings. You go to the council and it's birds chirping. So um, if you want change, it's, it's, at the city, it's at the county commission. What's interesting is four out of those five seats will be up for re-election um, this upcoming well, primary in May, and then if it goes to the general election in November, but probably in the primary, those seats will be um, distributed. So if you're in East Portland, North Portland, um, Central East Side Portland, or West Portland, really, you know, everybody except for the chair, um, you know, make sure you pay attention to who's running for those seats and vote for the person you think will solve the problems that we're facing. Yeah, and I just want to say, as somebody who has testified a number of times at the county, I'm going to link to the informational page from the county 
for everybody. Everybody should go to the county and testify to the extent that you're able to do that. A lot of us have jobs that are relatively flexible, particularly post-COVID. If you do any kind of work from home stuff, they are testifying on Thursday. People are able to testify on Thursday mornings. It's not like city council where you have to sign up ahead of time either. You can just waltz right in there, check in with the clerk, get your name on the piece of paper, And so you could do this at the last minute. I've done it before, just driving into work and thought, you know what? It's a Thursday morning. I'm just going to stop over at the county, see what's going on over there. Because I know any given day, there's going to be something relatively interesting to talk about because of where we live. And you can pick literally any item you want. It's not like city council where you need to go through a rigmarole to do a non-agenda item. They hear testimony on every item that you want to talk about it's just an open public forum and like Vadim said unless there's a group of you and sometimes we've been able to get a group together to go over and testify but unless you organize as a group it is birds chirping it is a relatively quiet place where the same people testify over and over and over again and people perk up when new faces show up and particularly when people have something interesting to say that is based on their neighborhood or things that they've seen or heard or any kind of data really whatsoever, any change from what's normal at the county, they will perk up and listen to what you have to say. And unlike city council, they're not going to engage you. So just expect sort of, I, I want people to understand, expect dead stares, but, and they won't talk back to you or engage in a dialogue, but please know, please know, you, you may be limited to two minutes if there's a lot of people, usually it's three minutes. I, I normally like to prepare two minutes just in case, but please know that they do listen to you. I, I know that they do. Sharon says that they do. She's she said that every time she's come on here. And in general, if we if you're able to get a group together and you all come in and you're you're singing the same tune, Julia Brim Edwards is another person who, who listens pretty closely. And then I think the others are sort of wild cards. But in usually you can they can get somebody else to come over on their side if you've got enough people coming in to testify, or even if just you as an individual are all persuasive. And you don't have to be a particularly eloquent speaker. That you should hear what will ha- help you is going in and signing up and then just listening to everybody else who was there. And frankly, you'll get a lot of confidence because you'll realize you don't have to be an orator to testify at a Multnomah County Commission meeting. And actually, if you go to city council, you'll learn that as well. But I think just the more you're showing up, the better. And if anybody has, you don't need to do it every Thursday, but if you have a little bit of time, it's really worth your while. And it helps get sane, rational voices out in front of the county. Vidim, what do you think the county, I mean, let's say if you're, let's just pretend that you're chair. And according to Sharon Myron, who's a city Multnomah County commissioner, um, the chair sort of has all the power and it's, it's sort of the chair gets to set the agenda, the chair gets to set the programming, and then the commissioner's vote on what the chair decides if you were chair Vadim what are the just you know hypothetically speaking I mean what are the kinds of things that you would do what do you want to see coming out of the county that you're not seeing so I'll hit the high points here one is we need accountability that word gets used tossed around too often but um, we really don't have much of an idea right now where the money is going and how well it's being utilized so uh, the uh, county auditor did a great job in two reports looking into the Joint Office of Homeless Services and trying to figure out exactly how many people were being housed and where the money was going and what the accountability mechanisms were. Uh, both reports were scathing, as uh, probably not to be um, unexpected here in Portland. But uh, one, she said that even the numbers they gave about the people that were being housed were so wildly incorrect that um, she could not determine um, you know, how many people were being housed. Even people that came in for services, like maybe needle exchanges or something like that, were put down as um, individuals, homeless individuals that were helped to housing. So, um, and then uh, the even with the numbers that were completely off, uh, the record keeping was not there. So um, for years now, for a couple of years now at least, uh, they've been requesting um, updated numbers. Last I've heard, those numbers were still not available. I don't know why it would take that long to get uh, reasonable numbers to the auditor of the county. But so accountability, how is that money being spent? The most recent audit also showed that when uh, service providers did not meet their goals, the goals were changed. 
So instead of actually ensuring that the goals were being met, um, somebody was able to just say, well, those goals are, you know, not as important as before. Here's some new goals that match what you've been doing. That is in the auditor's report as well. So we need to make sure that um, we know where the money's going, we know that we know what we're getting for the money. And if that money is not being utilized in an efficient manner, that we provide it to somebody that's able to use it better. You know, Bybee Lakes recently got a small chunk of money from the county after they've been fighting for years to get any money at all. Um, and, and yet they have uh, something like a 90% success rate in getting people off drug addiction and into housing at a cost of, I believe, only $32 uh, a night versus all the money that we're spend, being spent right now. So accountability, open books, let's see what's going on. Um, two, um, one of the areas that we're really uh, missing here in Portland is uh, a sobering center. So um, many of you uh, that are listening right now probably have seen individuals out in the streets in some sort of uh, mental crisis. You know, they might be walking around yelling. Um, There's an individual that was uh, sleeping naked in the streets uh, for months on end, pretty much um, on and off, but for months on end in Old Town. Um, you've seen these things before. Who do you call? Um, and if you call somebody, uh, where do they take them to? Well, there used to be a sobering center here in um, Portland for people that were experiencing uh, drug addiction problems, methamphetamine, um, heroin at that point in time. Uh, and so when they're going through these crises because of drugs, they were taken to a sobering center. They had an opportunity to uh, go off the drugs, and then they were provided with links to services. Well, that place closed down. is run by Central City Concern uh, because with methamphetamines, the violence was getting too much. Well, the violence was too much for people that were paid to deal with it. Now the violence is something that people living in those neighborhoods have to deal with themselves because we don't have a sobering center. And so years later, now uh, Julia Brim Edwards, who you mentioned, a uh, big fan of hers, but um, she is tasked with looking into what a sobering center model would look like. Now, there's already been a group of individuals that have been working on that for quite a few years. They issued a report, uh, Behavioral Health, BHECN is what they were calling it at that point in time. Um, but it had uh, county officials in there, city officials in there. Uh, Bob Day, who's the current police chief, he was um, on, that, on that task force as well. That, that went nowhere, but it were, there were people that were already talking about how to solve this issue. Um, now we're kind of reopening that can of worms, but it needs to happen because the police, whomever it is that is that first responder, fire, bureau, whatever, they need to take people somewhere. And the hospitals are not a good place to take those individuals. They don't have the resource and ability to deal with it. So we need to make sure that the county um, uh, uh, funds a... Um, a sobering center so people have a, an opportunity to go somewhere, sober up, and then be able to choose among services. And then also, you know, um, Washington County recently um, has had success with uh, formulating a uh, detox center, so a sobering service detox center. About the same time we lost our sobering um, uh, center, we looked into what that would look like and nothing ever came of it. Washington County looked into it, and now they have a plan um, and funding and a process for establishing that. Why is Washington County being successful in dealing with these kind of issues so people can sober up, get in treatment, have some beds so they can stay away from the drug dealers on the streets, and then um, go out of there and rejoin society as a normal um, individual that's able to work and so on and, and uh, be able to control their lives versus out of control with drugs? And Multnomah County, we're not. So we need to have accountability, we need to have a plan, and we need to ensure that plan goes forward so we're not failing at where other counties around us are having success. I think those are all great points. I'm a big fan of Julia Broom Edwards, too. She was on the show, and I think she's really delivered on the kinds of things that she said she was going to do, which I really, really appreciate. And I also appreciate you highlighting really good point, um, which kept crossing my mind when Kevin Barton came on this show. He's the DA of Washington County, which is why is Washington County the model? Washington County is a suburban county that's part of the Portland metro area, but why isn't Portland leading on these things given that the nexus of these crises is within Multnomah County? So I really appreciate you pointing all that out. Vidim, before we wrap up, is there anything else you wanted to say or talk about? Um, you know, you've said a lot. You know, get involved. 
um, uh, join some organizations, make sure that your voice is heard. You know, I'm a big proponent of neighborhood associations. So, you know, certainly that's an avenue. You've mentioned a few other ones that people that want to get involved can help out at. Um, you know, right now, uh, I think people are, are waking up that, you know, uh, you need to be able to have your voice heard, um, that there's a, a small faction of individuals that have been able to um, have an outs- uh, outsized influence on our policies, but those policies are failing us. And so, you know, the vast majority of the people that just want to be able to, you know, uh, take their kids to school, have a good education, uh, mow their lawns, take care of their families, um, their, um, their needs are not being met here in Portland because of some ideological reasons. And, um, you know, we're all progressive here. We all want the best uh, for the community. We all want the best for people that are suffering. Uh, but it's not going to happen unless we have people um, that are willing to work together across aisles. So it's not just ideologically driven, but bring, bring all sides to the table. Like as we're doing at the Measure 110 Forum, bring all sides to the table and hearing the pros and cons. And then advocating for needs and having someone that's able to um, plan and um, carry those needs out, which, again, we're, we're missing a lot here in Multnomah County. So uh, go out there, um, you know, uh, advocate for your needs, uh, making sure that your tax money is well spent. And, and, you know, here's something that probably doesn't need to be said, but there's more than enough money to deal with the problems that we're facing. We just need to make sure that that money is being spent well and we get effective services for um, what it is that we're paying for. So um, I appreciate being here, Kristen. You're always in a pleasure speaking to you. I'm a big fan of your podcast, and you're raising a lot of issues here that I think people need to learn more about. And um, hopefully uh, everybody listening to your podcast will have something to take away and be able to make Portland a, a better place for us to live in and um, our children to live in as well. Vidim Mazirsky, thank you so much. Really appreciate all the information as usual. Thanks for coming in. Appreciate it.